Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. This week is our annual membership drive. And I'm going to ask you to do something here that is really important to us. That is take a moment to go to the website strongtowns.org and sign up to become a member. We rely on our members to help not only fund this podcast, but fund a lot of what we're doing at Strong Towns. This movement is growing. We're growing rapidly. There's a, there's a ton of opportunity for us to do even more. Uh, our members support that, and our members are the ones that, that make this happen. Take a moment. I know it's not as easy as when you're reading the blog. The, the sign-up's right there on the podcast. You actually have to go to a separate website and, and do all that. Go to strongtowns.org, sign up to become a member, and support the organization that is, uh, is growing this national movement, this movement of, of people trying to build strong cities, make us a, a stronger nation, and, uh, and help us live better in the process. We've got some really great content for you this week. Uh, we've got a, a couple of guests that I think you're really going to like. We've got some behind-the-scenes stuff, and today we kick it off with an interview that our board member, John Reuter, did of me. It's, it's kind of a, I don't know, behind-the-scenes kind of thing, looking at where we're at and some of the things we're doing and, and kind of give you a little bit of insight into what goes on. We're going to give you a podcast every single day this week, so sit back and enjoy and take a moment. Don't forget to go to strongtowns.org and sign up as a member today. Hey, memberships are just 25 bucks. I mean, we've got higher levels for those of you that are really committed and really want to see this message spread. But if you just want to say, hey, I'm here, I support what you're doing, I really appreciate it, and, uh, and I'm here, go sign up today. 25 bucks, strongtowns.org. Thanks so much, everybody. You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This is our member drive week. And as part of our member drive week, we wanted to back up and kind of give you a little look under the hood into Strong Towns, how we operate and what we're doing. There's no better way to do that than to bring in one of our board members. John Reuter is formerly with Conservation Voters for Idaho. I'm going to screw that up because I always do. John brought us out to Idaho a few years ago. He now is with the League of Conservation Voters. Is that right, John? That is right, yes. Okay, so I, got the name of the, of, of, of the Idaho organization correct, too, which I thought was uh, wow. remarkable. I, I usually screw that up in one way or another. I'm getting better. If you're not familiar with how nonprofits operate, let me clarify things for you. Everybody works for a board, and the board is independent. And the board helps guide the organization and is ultimately responsible for a lot of the things that go on in a chart of responsibility. The board is my boss. And so I thought, what better way to probe kind of the things we're doing well and maybe the things we're not doing well at Strong Towns than to be grilled by my boss in front of everybody. So, John, thanks for agreeing to do this. Thank you. I have to say, um, we'll see if I can make you feel some pressure some tough questions today, but I always feel like it's still like a little, I'm a little starstruck when I come on the podcast now and then. 
because of how much Strong Towns has meant to me and how much, you know, the interviews you've done on this podcast have changed my thinking and helped me sort of come up with how I think we should approach Strong Towns and how I thought about the places I've lived and how to improve them. So, so I'm just going to start by saying thanks, Chuck, and uh, and don't hold uh, any of the tough questions I come up with uh, against me. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. <laughs> Go for it, John. You you know, this is your third time on the podcast, and we probably should start no, it's probably your fourth time. We should probably start by just noting one, one, one more time for the record that Sandpoint is the most beautiful city in, in North America, or is it the world? I can't remember. We, you know, we've said the most beautiful city in North America, the most beautiful city in the world. Let's just all decide it's the best. It's the best place. Okay. Period. <laughs> all right. Sandpoint, Idaho is the best place. For those who, who don't know, it's a small city in North Idaho, about 8,000 people where I served on the uh, uh, city council and well in that service. That's when I came in contact with Strong Towns and did some things that I think were uh, some policies that were very much in line with Strong Towns and some policies that Chuck and I are still arguing about whether they were in line with Strong Towns. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Well, it's a beautiful place. Go ahead. I will take whatever questions you've got, John. Since we started there, let's start there. What do you think as the Strong Town movement grows and there are these diversity of opinions. Recently, you actually to, took to the blog to have a debate with one of our contributors about like how much beauty even matters when we talk about strong towns. How do you think we deal about this diversity of opinions going forward, and how does that how does that work out, and how do you feel about that? I think it's a really exciting phase of our conversation because a lot of strong towns up until really the last I think year eighteen months has been dominated by what's come out of my head. And I'm going to be the first one to admit that while I spend a lot of time thinking about these issues and and I spend a lot of time talking about them, I don't have all the answers. And I I certainly don't even have all the diagnoses about what's wrong. I'm constantly gathering more information and and learning more things. And so I'm excited that we're, first of all, engaging a broad enough set of people where we're getting some really intelligent kind of counter thoughts or, or nuances to our conversation. But then I'm also even more thrilled that there's people actually taking ownership of this movement enough to the point where they'll stand up to me and say, hey, <laughs> you may have started this thing. You may be like the main contributor on the blog, but I-, I think you've got this wrong. And I care enough about the direction we're going in to actually have that conversation. So not only Matthias, who's a, a wonderful, is a great contributor, and we had that conversation, but, you know, Joe Minicozzi and I go back and forth on a number of things. I was in Baton Rouge last week. Nathan Norris, Jeff Dyer are, are members of ours. We had some really good conversations about the value of incremental over, you know, how important that was versus not. I think that these are really good, healthy indicators of a strong movement, a movement of people who care as passionately about it as we do, also a movement that has a lot of intellectual heft to it. I mean, we have a, a lot of very smart people who are stepping up and contributing both you know, on the blog and in the podcast, but also kind of behind the scenes in a lot of ways. I say bring it on. I think it's good. And I think the steel sharpening steel aspect of it is the, is the best part of it. As you point out, there's this really broad movement, right, from from the far left to the far right, people of all different kinds of political stripes, all different geographies around the country, people from small towns, people from big cities. What actually holds these group of people together? What What is the actual, like, foundation of strong towns, in your view? 
That's a good one because I, I have to say, I don't know if I fully know. You know, I, I started talking about these things and I started writing about them and I and I'm get invited to come speak at an environmental conference or a bike walk conference. And then I'm invited to speak at a tea party gathering and I'm invited to speak at an AFL-CIO get together. And, you know, I'm saying the same things, right? And I lift up my head and I look around and I realize that we have this broad group of people <laughs> who who don't necessarily hang out together and don't necessarily speak together and they're buying what we're saying and, and they're part of our movement. And there's a part of me that's been astounded by that and said, you know, I'm I'm not going to try to overanalyze it, even though I've, I've been asked, you know, what's the special sauce, Chuck? How do you do this? It's just the way we talk about things. That having been said, if we step back and look at it, I do think there's a couple of threads that I'm going to throw out as a theory of why this movement has become so broad and vigorous and really kind of defied the standard political context we generally apply to things in the United States. I think starting with the financial realities is a universal conversation that people can have. People on the left, people on the right, people with no strong affiliation want cities to be well-run fiscally and prudently. And I think that that is a kind of universal starting point where we can all say, yep, we want to make sure our books balance. We don't want to do things that are really dumb financially. We're in, we're with you. I think another kind of more subtle part though, is that there is a reality at the local level, as much as, you know, the, the national dialogue you see on cable news likes to distort. And as much as maybe politically, there's some advantage to nationalizing issues. I think everybody wants to live in a nice place. And I think everybody wants to live in a good neighborhood, a neighborhood where people are friendly to each other, where people help each other out, where people can can grow and prosper and have opportunity. When we look at the the paradigms out there to achieve that, they frustrate a lot of people. And I, I think our movement, our conversation, while it's not easy, and we're not suggesting that there's any simple solutions here, like we say that there's nothing we can change about what someone else does so that you don't have to change about what you do. I think at the end of the day, we're, we're tapping into a very real feeling that people have about their own places and the fact that with a different approach, we can make them better. We can not only make them stronger and financially better off, but we can improve people's lives in the process. I think that's a universal human yearning that not enough other people in the space are kind of addressing that need in the way that we go about doing it. That's pretty inspiring, particularly having like gotten to go with you to some of these events and seeing very different types of people in the audience respond with sort of a common enthusiasm. I mean, those are the moments, what I think is probably the most promising thing about this movement is that diversity. You were with me two or three years ago, John, when we did the tour of Idaho. And, and when we did those stops and, and gave those talks, I mean, people were very interested and had a lot of good feedback and we had a, a lot of good conversation. And, and I'd say generally people were excited, but you were there in Sandpoint, you know, last month when we had this conversation, I'm going to ask you, you know, is the level of enthusiasm changed? I mean, I, I feel it. I wonder if you feel it with these snapshots in time that you've gotten. Yeah, no, I think you definitely see the movement forward in terms of like this enthusiasm and this sense of, Progress. I guess here's here's the question around this. Is like there is this new like civic enthusiasm that's drawing towns of building, 
but what has it actually resulted in on the ground over the last year? Like, it's great to have people get excited about making their towns better places, but what what has actually changed over the past year since the last time we had one of these, you know, one of these end-of-the-year membership drives? I think I would point to two things, internal and external. You, we could talk about the internal, and, and maybe I'm just going to skip that because you can ask me some questions if you want me to go there. We've obviously made a lot of internal changes in a sense or, you know, shifts to capture the momentum. But let me just talk externally for a little bit because – a long time ago, I felt like, and probably was a voice in the wilderness, just pointing out things that didn't make sense to me. And over time, as things have grown, I found that not only am I, am I not a voice in the wilderness, uh, but there's a whole lot of people who are talking about this stuff, who care about this stuff, and who are standing right there with me. I mean, you, the rest of the board are approaching a thousand members, our audience, these are people who are standing with us and I don't feel alone anymore. I mean, I feel like we've got a, a group of people moving ahead for a while though. Success for us looked like largely just stopping stupid things. <laughs> and I'll, I'll use that phrase, stopping things from happening. So if we could get people to rethink some of the things they were doing and, and stop doing the most destructive practices, that was like the high watermark of success for us. And in the last couple of years, uh, we've been able to point to a, a number of places where we change the, the local conversation and they stop doing really destructive things. I, I think that is a win for a, where we were a couple of years ago. That's a, it's a really good benchmark. In the last year, though, we've seen a shift. I think this is more than subtle and it's really, really important because we've actually started to see whole groups of people actually proactively embrace our message, whether it's a place like Hayes, Kansas, where the staff there has completely kind of remade the way they approach things and the way they communicate amongst themselves, the way they account for their own work, the way they present things to the public and the city council. It, it is all based on a strong town's philosophy. And it, it's amazing to see the impact that that's had on their dialogue and their direction. Or if it's a place like Waco, Texas, where I was earlier this year, had a conversation with them and talked them through some of the things that they were, I'll say, hesitant about or kind of reluctant to take on and really kind of bolstered their sense of, of what they knew needed to be done. And they come up with a new comprehensive plan. It radically shifts the way that they uh, fund and finance growth and development it changes the subsidy pattern dramatically in a city that that really is an important one in between Dallas and, and Houston and affecting those conversations. So we're starting to see those what we're calling success stories, and we're making a, a conscious effort thanks to the you know the prodding that you have done and some of the other board members have done to be more front and center with these. We've started to document these success stories because they are important and the, the message that we're coming out with and the movement that we're creating is creating a groundswell of sorts that is resulting in, in real action on the ground. Our strategic plan says we're trying to create a movement of a million people who care. Our theory of change suggests that once we reach that kind of threshold, the idea of a broad national movement of people, once we reach that kind of threshold, we're going to start to see not only the conversation change, but change on the ground happen. And even with a smaller amount than a million today, you know, we even at the phase we're in now, we're starting to see those changes happen. And it's it's really exciting. 
Can you talk about the movement growth? You referenced the goal of getting to a million people who care. But where is the movement today and how has it grown over the last year? I'll give you the mathematical answer because I am an engineer and I, I do like statistics and data. When we look at things, we look at things like our audience size. We started the year and I don't see any reason why I can't share these numbers. <laughs> we started the year a little less than 80,000 people in our audience. And that's measured as a total number of unique people that are on our website or on our blog over the last 12 months. That number has grown to over 300,000. I think we're at 305,000 the last report I put together for the board. So we've seen tremendous growth in our audience. And some of that is the exponential nature of the internet and the way we choose to communicate. But nonetheless, I mean, we're, we're seeing our message reach audiences that are way beyond the standard people that you would reach in a, a debate or a conversation about places and cities. We're reaching a, a huge audience. That's translating then into some of the other things that we see. I mean, our podcast audience is more than doubled over the course of this year. Our membership is on track to double this year. We're seeing other things like our social media engagements go way, way up. The number of people sharing our stuff is skyrocketing. We track things like media mentions. How often is our message mentioned in other places? And those metrics, like everything else, has been kind of exponentially off the charts. When we step back and we say, you know, we've got momentum, we're actually measuring that. We're actually looking back and saying, wow, from where we were before, we thought we had a lot of momentum. Now, all of a sudden, oh my gosh, uh, this is a much bigger wave. I think strategically, that's been a reality that has crept up on us. And we're now, in a sense, embracing. I mean, our new strategic plan really embraces the notion that we can and need to, if we're going to be successful with this movement, double our membership, double our readership, have those as annual goals for us. All the lights are going red off the charts in terms of the reach that we've got right now. And our goal is to keep up that rate of growth. What does that mean like next year? Where are we at next year? This time? At the end of next year, end of 2016. Very strong counts. Well, in terms of the metrics, let's look at the hard goals. Our board has said uh, we want to double our membership every year for the next, I want to say, four or five years. That means that a year from now, we're not talking about 1,000 members. We're talking about 2,000 members. That is a really important goal because what we see is that our membership is a reflection of our audience. And when our audience grows, our, our membership, if we're doing things correctly, if we're actually mobilizing people to share our message, to care, and to take action, a certain significant percentage of those should be inclined to want to become members and support us and help us reach that next level of building this uh, national movement, this, this level of momentum. And so the board has said we want to double our, our membership year of year. So 2000 at the end of next year. That means a whole bunch of things for me. It means that our audience has to continue to grow and our audience needs to go from 300,000 to, you know, 600,000 plus next year. We we need to do a better job continuously. Not that we've done a bad job, but I, we need to continue to up our game in terms of reaching a, a broader audience with a more nuanced message. So in, instead of having 
a smaller audience that we reach with a broad message, we actually need to be able to, in a sense, segment our message down and deliver it to people in different ways so that they can get it in ways that are comfortable for them, in ways that work for them, mechanisms, format, and, and all those kind of things that, that work for different audiences. Those are all challenges that we have in order to keep that acceleration going. So if we're successful, we should see our membership double next year. We should see it double the year after, and we should see it double the year after and the year after that. And those will be byproducts of us doing the right thing on the front end in terms of sharing, you know, keeping the message strong, developing it in really positive ways, and then distributing it in ways that reach a, a really broad segment of people. Our members are a huge part of that too. I mean, we, we ask them all the time, share our stuff. Uh, a million people who care is a million people who are sharing our message. And that's really the ultimate metric of success. So this sort of plays into a disagreement that you and I had over the last couple of months, where you know the traditional way that a lot of nonprofits fund themselves is they find a few people who can write big checks, and those people really like hold up, you know, really help the organization uh, fund its costs. And you know, it's really about how do you find these relatively small number of major donors that really help hold up the work. And I would say, hey, we, we spend very little time on that. And I just want to be clear before we go in this conversation, if you're somebody who can write a big check, there's, there's a spot for those to go, and I'll, I'll get you to talk about that maybe. But you really push back on that notion that you should be spending your time on those bigger donors and that you really felt that you wanted to spend your time focused on this membership, uh, which is ultimately the viewpoint that went out. I, I think you may have even convinced people. Why, why was that? Like, why, why focus on membership and these smaller donors rather than focus on trying to find those few big potential donors. Well, out of respect for you, and truly, I say this, any level of disagreement we had was more me trying to figure out how this made sense. Because I, I agreed with you, and you know, very early on when we got some early foundation support, the advice that I got from them is you need to find a major donor. You need to find someone who really likes what you're doing, who can write you a big check. And oh my gosh, wouldn't that have been nice? And and we can talk about major donors after this bit because I, I, we do have the place for them, obviously, and some really important things we're trying to do. But I had a hard time because so much of what we're oriented to do is really a broader kind of movement building kind of thing. I mean, I'm I'm out... Last month, I gave, I don't know how many talks, I spoke in front of 1,500 people just last month. You know, we added uh, 60, 70 members last month. Uh, we added thousands of, of new people to our audience last month. I'm spending so much of my time and effort building this really broad-based movement of people and setting them up to share our message and be able to converse about these things in their communities with their friends and their neighbors and their elected officials and their professionals and, and the people who are going to affect change in their community. My real pushback to you was, I, I don't know when I have time to do this. <laughs> you know, we were going through all the things that a, a major donor program encompasses. And I thought, you know, we're going to lose momentum if I have to spend as much time as it's going to take to raise uh, the money that you're talking about. Uh, from you know one or two or, or or even a dozen people who are really to write us big checks. I also, along with the momentum thing, just had some concerns over the focus of our organization. I mean, we're 
very focused on delivering a message to a broad group of people. I, when I engage with, early on engage with engineers and planners, because I am an engineer, I am a planner, there's a tendency to develop a message for engineers and planners, one that would be more technical, one that would be more filled with jargon, one that would meet the needs of, of those specific professional silos. When we talk to our membership, yes, we have engineers and planners in our membership, but we've got so many more people that are not. I mean, we have computer programmers and web designers. We have uh, florists and retailers. We have builders and developers. We, we have people who just like cities, right? Who just like places. We have people who just like their neighborhood, who are retired and say, I, I really just want this place to be better. And, and I, my pushback was, if we build an organization around the resource stream that would come from a handful of individual donors, I think we will lose the essence of what we're doing and the essence of, of who we are and, and really lose a lot of the momentum. The momentum really comes from the feedback from our audience and our members. And the more of those we have, the more of those we get, the better feedback we get and, and, and really the better our organization becomes. Thus, the better we've become, the more we are attractive to other people and other members. And so there's a certain momentum there that I, I think our current approach captures really well. And, and for me, as a, as a feedback kind of person, I just feel very comfortable with an organization whose financial future aligns with our success is going to align with our success. I mean, if, if, if we are successful from achieving our mission – if we're going to create a million people who care and we're going to change the conversation in this country, that's going to show up in our membership numbers and in our financial success. And we're going to be able to do more things more effectively. If we're not doing the right thing, if we're not achieving our mission, if we're, if we're, if we're just talking to the breeze and, and the national conversation is not changing at all, then we're going to stall out and our membership's not going to grow and we should go look for something else to do. And I, I feel very comfortable with that kind of alignment of our organizational future and our financial future. And it's really interesting, right? Because it reminds me of what I would like to say about nonprofits versus for-profits. Like in a for-profit, you exist based on whether you can bring in money, and your goal is to bring in money, right? That's to make money. Right. And in a nonprofit, your goal is to change the world, and you exist based on whether you can bring in money. Right. And right. <laughs> what it seems like, you know, strong counts figuring out how to do is how to align that necessity to have funding um, to be able to do this work. Obviously, uh, traveling around the country, talking to people, adding the staff, which I want to talk about in a second here, doing all of these things requires revenue, requires that there actually be money there to pay people and to cover these costs and to keep the website up and pay for this podcast you know, the bandwidth and everything else, obviously there's costs to all these things. And by having us rely on membership, we're aligning our theory of change of getting to this million people with this revenues of a people-funded movement. And so that's really the thing that I think people can do by, by joining or by renewing their membership is not just provide financial support, but provide the right kind of financial support that allows us to keep growing this movement in the right way. I couldn't agree more. And, and I really, I, I think the emphasis for me, is if we don't have a reason for exist, I mean, if, if we're not doing, <laughs> if we're not doing stuff, we should get the feedback to go away, right? I mean, I, I'm, I don't want to speak poorly of, of any other organizations, but I, I've seen 
lots of organizations that are in the nonprofit realm that just need to go away. They're not doing much. They've got a. Let's just be clear. You're, you're talking about the Society of Engineers. <laughs> oh, I would right. love. Can, uh, yeah, I would love that. Um, that's maybe we should have that as an organizational goal. No. Um, back in 2009, when John Commerz and Ben Olson were encouraging me to start a nonprofit, I flat out told them no. I mean, I, I don't want to do it. And the reason was I, I really didn't think very highly of nonprofit organizations. Largely, it was because my experience with them had been. Uh, maybe they had a mission, maybe they had things that they wanted to do, but really they were not very much different than any other organization that ran around looking for who would pay them to do something. The ones that I had worked with uh, quite intimately, I, I felt had not really done justice to their mission, maybe had stayed around longer than they should have, but had some funding streams that they could tap into that that made that happen. I said, I don't want to get into that malaise. I think we have created an organization uh, where malaise will result in us going away. I mean, as soon as we are not relevant, as soon as we are not adding to the conversation, as soon as we, uh, you know, no longer are providing any value, I think people should stop being members and we will go away. And, and I, I think that that's a good outcome. That's the kind of feedback that I, I'm very comfortable with. I feel like we've aligned ourselves to succeed and we've also aligned ourselves to know if we're not succeeding. And that means we're going to get painful feedback when we're wrong and we're going to have to, to change and adapt and, and do a better job or else we're going to go away. And, and that, that's a strong towns kind of world, right? Yeah, it aligns with our understanding of how we think the, the world works and how cities work and how elected leaders and community members and all sorts of people and leaders in their communities should really respond to the realities that they face, to the yeah. physical realities that they face. Precisely. And, having, and, and getting, being in touch with that in a real way. Now, that said, we still don't mind if money would come in from foundations and major donors. In fact, it would be very hopeful in some senses. But where does that money go in a world where we're really trying to have the foundation of the organization funded by membership? What, what do we want major donors for and foundations for? Why do we keep reaching out in obviously a more limited sense? But, but why are we reaching out? Last year, we decided in December last year, so you know, roughly 11 months ago, we decided that we were, we were done consulting, A, and B, we were also done going out for grants until we kind of figured out th this alignment. What we didn't want to do is we didn't want to commit ourselves to things that we needed to do that weren't going to be aligned with our mission. At this point, we've got that part figured out. And I've been re-engaging with a number of foundations that we built relationships with. I'm looking to do some more of that in the coming weeks. Uh, we also have a need to talk to some people who would be interested in what we're now calling social venture capital, major donors, people who would like to support what I would call an experiment or the, the next phase of, of Strong Towns. Uh, we've got the financial base now to continue to do what we do best. And as that continues to grow and, and shore up our support, we're going to be able to keep continuing to do what we do the way we do it. What we need to do, however, if we're going to meet our goals is, is we need to make some strategic investments, right? We need to invest in, uh, in things that will help us grow our audience. Uh, we've got a, a number of initiatives on the podcast side, on the video side, and, and some things on the blog side as well as well as some things for improving our curbside chat program uh, where we are going to be asking individuals and foundations to support us in essentially trying new things. 
we would like to try some things that we have reason to believe will be successful. They're kind of, to use our language at Strong Towns, the next increment of growth. So these are not like crazy wild dreams. It's the, it's the next increment. And we're going to ask some people to come along for that ride and, and help us try those new things. When they work out, they're going to fit into our model, which means they're going to have to be self-funding. They're going to have to be viable by themselves in the next iteration. But we're going to need some seed money, essentially, to help us do those things. And so, yes, you guys have asked me to uh, go out and engage with these, uh, these foundations again. I'm, I'm doing that. Uh, you and I are working on, as along with the other board, a major donor strategy. I will be engaging with people in, in, in that way in the coming weeks and, and, and months as well. Uh, we've got a, a lot of things that I can make a really strong logical case are, are the next step that would propel us to that doubling a membership next year and doubling a membership the year after and, and the, the big audience growth and changing conversation that, that needs to happen to make that happen. Those are strategic investments we're, we're prepared to make. And I'm, those are the ones that keep me up at night. Like I can't sleep, uh, just kind of going through like, okay, here's, here's how we're going to set this up and do it. It's, it's incredibly exciting. It's interesting to me as we talk about like this venture social capital and this membership model and trying to really, you know, exponentially increase the audience each year and increase membership each year. Cause it seems like strong towns is more like an internet startup than it is anything else. Do you buy that or what do you think? What do you think the comparison, the right comparison is to what Strong Towns is doing? I definitely buy that. I mean, for me, I, I look at like my inspirations early on. I, because I'm a reader, I, I read a bunch of books on nonprofits and nonprofit management and I just found them to be blah. You know, I, I didn't care. Like they, 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 they did nothing for me. But when I got into reading books on growth hacking and uh, startups and the, the lean startup. I mean, a lot of this stuff I, I got into because I was looking for ways to help cities make good strategic, low risk investments that had a high risk of or a high chance of paying off. And this is really a venture capital kind of model. This is really a startup model. It wasn't a very hard leap uh, because we were already doing some of this stuff anyway to incorporate a lot of that thinking into what we do. And so, you know, we do a lot of A-B testing. We do a lot of, you know, let's send this email to this group and this email to this group and see uh, what the engagement levels are with that. We run a, a lot of databases and we, we manage our entire schedule uh, through Scrum, which is a program that has come from the uh, computer programming world. So our mentality is very much aligned with that. We're very much a startup kind of mentality. So when, when we talk about a major donor strategy, for instance, part of the early conversations that you and I had was around a, a traditional major donor strategy where you get people who are aligned with your mission, who are going to commit to, uh, you know, some degree of ongoing support. And what I'm really looking at is how do we get venture capital? How do we get people who say, I want to see big change. I want to see a payoff from that change. I'm willing to take a little bit of risk. Uh, because I know nothing's guaranteed here, but um, this seems like a, a good place to put a little bit of money to, you know, with a, with a really potential very high upside. And that that's a model that, yeah, is very non-traditional for a nonprofit, much more Silicon Valley-esque, but, I, you know, we're making it work under a nonprofit model. 
Yeah, can you talk more about Scrum? You have these two new team members now. Like, how do you actually work together on a on a week to week basis or on a month to month basis? What does that look like? Because I, I think this is sort of a very this is a very foreign concept to me coming from uh, from the nonprofit world, and maybe you know more familiar with some of our computer programmers I know that make up a big chunk of our audience. But what is this thing, and how do you actually work together, and what does it look like? Well, we use a modified Scrum, and I'm I'm not going to pretend that we are you know, following it to the, to the, the letter of the book. But one of the things that we have found is that we have more ideas than we have time, right? Like we have more things that need to be done <laughs> than we have time to do them. And and we have more, not just our staff, which we're, there's, there's four of us. Now we have two new full-timers and then a, a part-time person who's helping us out. Uh, she's our pathfinder, Michelle, who's helping us uh, line up our engagements what we find is that we have uh, it, it just in our staff more ideas for things that would be really helpful than we have time. And and when we incorporate the things that our members are suggesting that we do and the thing that our board is, uh, you know, you guys ask us to do. <laughs> you guys do more than ask. You You say we want these things done, right? So what we find is that if, if we don't have a, a way of organizing our good thoughts and our ideas, we lose them. Or we we spin our wheels in a very uncoordinated way. Now, I work in central Minnesota. I live in Brainerd. Uh, Jason works out of Grand Forks, and Michelle or Rachel works out of Milwaukee. So we're not seeing each other face to face, but you know, once every you know couple months, right? Michelle works in West Virginia. I I probably will go a long, long time without seeing her face to face. And so we have to have a way to keep the energy, the ideas, and the focus. And Scrum has allowed us to do that. When we have a, a new idea, uh, it goes into a thing called the backlog. Uh, we put it there. Once every three weeks, we start what's called a sprint, where we take the best ideas out of the backlog. We prioritize you know, the backlog and say, here's the, here's the best ideas. Here's the most important stuff. Here's the kind of lowest hanging fruit amongst all these things that we think we need to do. And over the next three weeks, we're going to focus on these. If in those intervening three weeks, a great idea comes in, we say, awesome, this sounds like a fantastic idea, put it in the backlog. And when we get to the next sprint, it will get prioritized along with everything else. And maybe it is a great idea. Maybe after 10 days of thinking about it, it's it's not so great. Or maybe it's not so great compared to something else that's a little bit more urgent. So this is the way that a kind of flat, flexible organization that is all about ideas and change and kind of fast pace. This is how we've found to be able to work together efficiently and effectively, but also keeping that kind of forward-leaning entrepreneurial kind of spirit. I love Scrum. And I think John, I thank John Anderson for introducing it to me about a year and a half ago. It's been a lifesaver, really. Speaking of lifesavers, you had rather, uh, well, I'll just say very complimentary things to say about our new staff members. Can you talk about them and like why you're so enthusiastic? I think that's a fair way to put it. Every time I talk to you, you're like just telling me how great it is what what one of them has done this week or what all of them have done. And you just always seem to have so much enthusiasm about it. Why? I do. I I love these guys. And And part of it is I've wanted this for a long time. One of the early complaints that you as a board member got from me was I was really frustrated being out on the road and seeing us not be in a position to capitalize on a lot of the things that that were going on. We would show up to places 
And because, you know, I was stretched so thin and we just didn't have the capacity, I, I would show up at an event and we would have members who actually lived in that city who didn't even know we were going to be there. Uh, we would have people in our database who had never been informed. And, and I'd be leaving town and I have something posted on Facebook and people would say, oh my gosh, you were here? And it was just, it was so depressing to me because those were easy things to do, but I was just spread so thin. Uh, I didn't have a chance to do them. We also had this tremendous momentum that we would create at these events and then just watch it dissipate over time. You know, our retention rate essentially of people who we could engage with at an event versus people who we could help get more information, help get information to share with other people, basically bring them into our audience and into our movement. We just didn't have the resources to do that. And so part of my love of Jason and Rachel and Michelle is that they, they are the, the people that I have been desiring. They're the people that I've needed for so long. They're out there in advance of all of our stuff, uh, lining things up. They are there following up afterward. They are intensely working with our members, with our audience to not only provide great content, get it distributed widely, but help people actually nudge uh, them along to take action and to share the message and to do great things. Michelle as a pathfinder has been just amazing in the way she's able to kind of flesh out what people are interested in for events, finding ways to make those events happen. These guys are just a dream team of people to work with. And, and they're all really nice too. I mean, I, we went through this hiring process, you know, you, you guys uh, were patient with me. I told you what I wanted to do. And, and you said, well, that sounds interesting. It certainly is non-traditional and we'll cut you some slack. But we took a, a pool of 154 people and whittled them down to just a handful over the course of three weeks and picked, uh, you know, out of a bunch of people that I thought would all be successful, picked some people that uh, have really worked out incredibly well. We had last month in October, our biggest month ever in terms of readership on the blog. And we have gone now from being, when I'm in the office, we would do 10, 11 posts a week. And when I was out of the office, we'd struggle to do five or six. We're now consistently doing 12, 13. Uh, we're consistent on our uh, feeds, on social media. We're consistent on getting back to our members when they got questions or, or inquiries. And we're consistent on just like welcoming people. Those are all like the little details. Jeez, I, I just, I go to bed happy every night now because we've got this great support staff who's doing just yeoman's work, right? Yeah, you talk a little bit about Michelle and what makes you know what makes her contributions the way that she's pathfinding and connecting and really helping people come into the movement and helping us figure out how our studios go. Talk about Rachel and Jason specifically too, and what's what like you know it's great that we have more people, we have this more capacity, but it seems like we really lucked out and got the right people. Yeah, R Rachel was very special. She volunteered for us at the beginning of the year and started essentially writing a column for us as well as doing some other work. She ran our Pinterest account and different things like that. And I kind of like Grayson and Matthias and, and some of our other, you know, Andrew Price and Nate Hood. Right away, there was a kind of comfort level that I had that this is a person who spoke with our voice, someone who sees the world differently than I do. I mean, certainly we have a lot in common, but we're different people from different places and, and we look at things differently, but really spoke with a voice and an emphasis that resonated with me and, and I think resonated with our audience. So sliding Rachel in and really turning the keys of our 
most critical communications infrastructure over to her. I mean, she runs our content calendar. She decides when things are posted, what's in the top spot, uh, what goes where, how it's shared on social media. She decides, you know, what runs and what doesn't. Um, she does all the the kind of editing and uh, and fixing up of of the blog posts. She is designing our new sites and some of our new landing pages that we're about to roll out and aggregating our content in those. She is a amazing capacity to, I think, seamlessly from from what we were doing before she was here, pick up the strong towns, the, the essence of the strong towns message and share that in a way that I think goes beyond what my capacities were. Jason is just a, another creature altogether. And when we did the Myers-Briggs testing, he tested the same as you, actually, which is one of those things that uh, is, signifies to me how I interact and work with him and how he interacts and works with other people. He's a He's an extrovert. He's a very personable person. He's someone that I find like really easy to work with back and forth. He's kind of one of these roll up your sleeves kind of guys. As things have come in from our members, he catches those and directs them in the right direction. He finds people answers. When technical things come up uh, with how people get signed up and, and how people pay their membership fees, he digs under the hood and figures that stuff out. He has been a, a true kind of problem solver, which is exactly the kind of person you want in a member support kind of system. So I was going to say we lucked out because we did. I mean, hiring people is, is often a crapshoot, but gosh, we, we did a little bit more than luck out. I mean, we, we've been amazingly fortunate that the people we've got are, are not only been a really good fit for us in terms of their competence, but a really good fit for us in terms of their, their embrace of our mission and their understanding of, of what we're trying to accomplish. Jason was a member too, and as was Michelle, you know, before we brought them in. So these are people that have, have long kind of helped us promote Strong Towns and, and are the core of our message. So I have a few questions left for you. One of the things I wanted to know is like, what are you most excited about right now? What's the most exciting thing? <laughs> this very moment? I'm excited about going to bed tonight. Um, <laughs> actually, I have been, you know, it's been 10 weeks on the road. And if you asked me 10 weeks ago, or even like nine, eight weeks ago, how you doing? I'd be like, I'm, I'm like at the beginning of a marathon and I've got all the momentum. Um, you kind of, after you travel 10 weeks, you get to the end of the marathon and, you know, there's a little bit of uh, energy you've got because you can see the finish line. So I I'm going to be finishing this long stretch of travel now at the end of this week, it's the thing that is uh, is kind of, you know, put one foot in front of the other right now. If I step back and I look, I'm really excited about essentially the, the infrastructure that we've built and then being able to put the next layer on top of it. And and we've built this kind of incrementally, this infrastructure of the of the blog and the website and the podcast and the video work and the social media channels. And now that we've got the capacity and now that we've got uh, the, the, you know, kind of figured out what we're doing there, we're starting to put the next layer in place and really get good at using it. So we've, you know, come up with different ways of A-B testing our pages, which means by, for those of you that don't know, it means we run version A and we run version B and we see how uh, things work out. And if we get better interaction on A than B, we, we drop B, Right. 
a lot of people just run a web page and they're like, yep, it looks good. Um, we're actually getting into the subtle nuances where we can test different things and different iterations and really learn what works out very well. We're doing this with emails. Uh, we're doing this with some of our other interactions. We're actually now starting to uh, overlay in different softwares that that look at how far down in our post people engage. So instead of just getting, you know, here's the number of, of hits or here's the number of page views, which maybe we wrote a good headline, but our content is, is not very good. We're actually able to delve into the content now and say, okay, uh, when we get six paragraphs down, we tend to start losing people. So let's, let's rework that six paragraphs so that it's more coherent so that we can actually, you know, share this to a broader audience of people. We're getting into that next level of metrics and next level of understanding. And it's allowing us to become a lot more sophisticated in what we do and essentially get more bang for our, our buck in terms of the, the effort we're putting into creating and distributing content. I'm also really thrilled. And I, I, I feel like I shouldn't talk about some of this stuff because it's still in development. And I, 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 I don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. I'd rather do the opposite. Let me, let me tease it like this. We are going to be looking for foundation major donor support well into the, you know, aggregate well into the six figures. We're going to be looking for some serious social venture capital in the audio realm and in the video realm for projects that are the next step beyond what we do today. And we have uh, tested and we have a format and we have an approach that we believe is going to allow us to 10x our audiences in those streams, which are already significant. And so, you know, the, that project, uh, those, those sets of projects are ones that keep me up late brainstorming on and, and thinking about. And we've got a couple partners we're collaborating with to bring some of those to fruition. Those are intensely exciting projects. I can't wait to be able to talk about them more thoroughly. And I, I can't wait to find the partners that we need to, to help, you know, financially bring those forward because we're, we're very close to being able to do some things that I think will be game changing in terms of the audience level that we're going to be able to reach with this message. It's funny because again, you said as you were, I think that work is all super exciting, but again, as you were leading into that, you said, you know, I'm not sure if I should say this. And there's been a couple of times during this conversation where you're like, I'm not sure if I should say anything, but all right, I will. <laughs> and uh, listening to the podcast and reading the emails and, you know, and following along, one of the things that's really interesting to me is how much you've embraced uh, sort of a radical transparency, a real openness about where the organization's going, about how many hits we actually have on the website. Like, are, is anyone paying attention? Well, here's how many people are paying attention. Here's where membership is. Here's where we're trying to go. That made me feel a little nervous, honestly, as a board member early on, uh, I guess, like six months ago. And, yeah. and, I, uh, and I don't know that I ever really even expressed that to you, but I think I've become more and more convinced that it's a feature, not a bug of the organization. Yeah. I uh, embrace this sort of super openness. I mean, is, is that something you do unconsciously, or is that just your nature? Is this just a Midwestern thing? What's what's the deal with, like, with Pizza Open and having conversations like the one we're having right now and sharing those with membership? And, like, here's our strategy, and here's where we're headed. Why yeah. do you think that's important? Why do you ask me to come and talk to you? I think if I'm honest with myself, there's a little bit of insecurity on my behalf. I spend a lot of time thinking about this stuff. And when I share things, 
a lot of what I'm, I think I'm trying to do is, is get people's reaction and get people's feedback. I mean, it's whenever you write a blog piece, I've grown used to this, but there's a certain level of, uh, you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there. Is, is this going to be accepted? Is this going to be considered crazy? Are, are people going to laugh at me? Are people going to impugn me? You know, you're kind of putting yourself out there. And when you do a podcast, it's the same thing. I mean, I've always felt, I haven't always felt, but I've, I've felt a lot in the last few years that the feedback that I get here is amongst friends in a sense. Like this is uh, in a way a, like a safe zone, right? Like I can say, here's where we're at. And there's enough people listening who will give me like good positive feedback and kind of nudge me in one direction or another that, that they're going to give me the confidence to, to move ahead. I, I love our board. And it's not just that I think you guys are all great people, which I do. But one of the great things about our current board is that you guys uh, give me a lot of really strong feedback. And a lot of times you'll say, hey, interesting idea. Not really sure about that. Explain it to me a little bit more. Or you'll say, you know, hey, uh, I don't think you're thinking about these few things here. And to me, that's that's part of the iterative process, right? Like I don't want to roll out something huge that in a sense hasn't been been tested. And let's go back a year ago when we were first doing the Transportation of the Next American City presentation. We held at the National Gathering this thing called, I think, Parliamentary Orders or something like that. And the rules were, you had to criticize my talk. <laughs> I was going to give, I gave the talk and then everybody that was there had to criticize some aspect of it. The idea being, let's make it better. The notion that I had was I would rather not do it well or, or do it, you know, get criticism here in front of 30 of my closest friends than out there in front of hundreds of people. I kind of feel like this blog is that way a little bit too. And this movement is a little bit that way. We have the founders circle, uh, you know, a couple hundred people that were with us initially. We're now going to have a thousand strong. We're going to have the first thousand members at the end of this year. That's a special group of people. And I have a certain kind of bond and camaraderie, if we want to say, where I, I, I don't feel as exposed in having these conversations with those people, uh, you know, part of that, that group as I, as I maybe should or, or would with a different group of people. I certainly wouldn't stand up in front of a big group and say some of the things we've, we've talked about today on the podcast. But, you know, I think that's the nature of our audience and the nature of the, the conversation we're having here. It, it strengthens me. It helps me you know, having those conversations that I think if we were a bigger organization uh, with a, a PR team and, uh, you know, a, a well-refined brand that went through some marketing firm, uh, we'd have to, you know, be more packaged in what we do. But I, I think the strength of what we do is that we're authentic and our, our members are really helping us with that aspect of it. Why are you a member of Strong Counts? I am a member. And uh, yeah, I, I pay in every month to be a member. There's a part of it that's like leading by example, right? Like I'm, I'm asking everybody else to be a member. I, I'm going to be a member. But I, there's a deeper part of it for me. And I, I believe strongly in what we're doing. One of the things that we talked about at our last board meeting, just briefly, but I have it in big, bold letters for the next agenda. Uh, I, I think I've called it succession planning. But the the idea is... What comes after me? We, we need to build a movement of, of, of thoughts and ideas and people 
that is far bigger than me and is not fragile based on my own fragility. I mean, I'm a, I'm a person. I'm I'm a mortal. I have limits. I'm probably not going to do this my entire life. And we need to have a, a notion of of how we grow beyond just my limits and capacities. And so I support the organization myself. And, and even if I weren't doing this in the role that I'm doing, I, I would still continue to be a member because I, I, I believe in what we're doing and I believe it needs to uh, continue to grow and accelerate and the, the plateaus we've reached, we can't go back from. And so, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sustaining, supporting member, very proudly so. I, I, I will continue to be. And, and why? Other than building the organization, like why is this organization important to you? Why have you spent so much of your life already building the organization to where it is and contributing back to the organization as a member? Like why, why does this matter to you? I, I think I could say the easy thing, right? Like I, I care about our future and, and I have children and I have a wife and, and I care about my city and I, I, I care about all those things. And, and all that would be true, right? All that would be very true. And I, I do think that you know, what we're doing in changing the national dialogue on growth and development is critically important to our future. I'm going to throw a couple of other things in there, though, that that come to my mind that that maybe are not as uh, maybe is not as important as those things at the end of the day, but but kind of drive me day in and day out. I a lot of this just started with me being alone. I mean, feeling like I was a voice in the, in the wilderness, like uh you know, quite frankly, am I crazy? None of this makes any sense to me. Is that just because I'm crazy? And there's a certain comfort and affirmation that I get personally by being associated with all these people who are clearly not crazy, but who find value in what we're doing. And so there's a certain kind of strength in numbers that uh, has given me a confidence and a comfort level as a, as a human, as a as a person who looks around and asks, you know, who am I? Why am I here? There's a there's a certain aspect of of strong towns that has helped make sense of of the craziness around me that I just really value. I, I'm going to say this without getting dystopian because I, I I don't believe in a a dark vision for the future of America or the world. But we're going through some difficult times. I, I think things will get more difficult as our suburban experiment unwinds. I fear that in times of difficulty, especially when you're coming off of really great levels of of affluence, illusion or not, uh, societies tend to do crazy things. We as Strong Towns members, as as members of the Strong Towns movement, are really in a position very unique in America today to be a calming influence, a rational influence what I've called a safe place to land, an alternative to craziness when things become more crazy. And I, I feel this sense of urgency. You guys uh, got on my case a little bit last year because I was saying, come on now, we got we to gotta go faster. We got to move. We got to do this. We got to do this. And, 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 you know, the idea of, of slowing down just sits wrong with me because I see things as not financially stable. I see things as falling apart. And I, I have this urgency to create a softer landing for us, not only for, for me and for you and for the generation today, not only for my kids and their future, but I believe in America. I believe in the greatness of this country. And I believe that a big part of that greatness is our ability to 
question ourselves and, and adapt. And, and I want to be part of that tradition in America that says when things are difficult, we can reinvent ourselves in positive ways. And I, I think we're at one of those moments in history where we need to reinvent ourselves in a, in a positive way. And we can at Strong Towns be that positive change. I have one last question for you, and it might be a bit of a curveball here, but before I get to it, was there anything like that you thought we should have covered today? I'll give you a chance to critique me here on this. Uh, what, what should have I asked you about that I didn't or something else you wanted to add? No, um, it's funny because, we... because you said, how long should this podcast go? And I said, 20 to 25 minutes. And <laughs> my meter reads over an hour now. So obviously uh, <laughs> I talked like way longer than I thought I should, but no, I, I, I think we're, I think we're good. You know, I, maybe the only thing would be the board itself because, you know, we have, very intentionally during this kind of time of transition had a, a, a small, very focused board of people who not only are, have been committed to what we're doing uh, and really get the essence of, of what we're trying to do, but have, have had an ability to, in a way that challenges me, but also you know helps me think through some of these big issues. But we're changing at that level too. And I, I think that as our movement becomes broader and more diverse, I think our board also needs to become broader and, and more diverse. And, and maybe that's a question for you. You know, how do we see kind of the board and maybe the overall kind of intellectual energy of this organization continuing to change over the coming years? I didn't, I didn't expect to have to answer questions. I thought <laughs> I could just ask them. But I, uh, I think the board is. I mean, I think the board is going to continue to grow, become more diverse, uh, so that it matches the diversity in our membership. Right now, it's three white guys. Um, I think we could obviously yeah. uh, uh, we could stand to have uh, diversity of voices that actually represent the diversity of our movement. I don't know. I mean, this, this organization that has such a has, has had and has such a great staff. I always feel like the energy comes more from there than from us and that we just sort of, you know, I, I think the greatest contribution that I've been able to make is just sort of asking questions along the way and saying, well, have you thought about this or what do you think about that? I think the heart and soul of this organization is you and this, and this new growing staff. So I just think the board role is really to, to support that and, and to push back and to challenge too and, and you know, support through challenging. I think it's something that we, we do at our best. Yeah. Uh, that's sort of my take there. I totally agree. Well, give me but, give me your last question then, and we'll uh, we'll wrap. My this. last question: for, for years, you've ended the podcast by saying, "Keep doing what you can to build strong towns," and you've ended the podcast this way well before I think you knew if anyone was actually listening. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems it, it seems like such like a clear like call to action and a call to like have a movement of people doing what they can across the country. And it seems like over this past year, that's really happened. It's been happening for a while now, but it, it sort of hit a critical tipping point this year where the examples just became more numerous and there's a new page on the uh, on the website that just like uh, is, is a collection of victories of people doing what they can to build strong towns. Why, why did you start by saying, why have you started by ending every podcast with that phrase, did you know that this is where we were headed? Was it important to you? You were building a movement. Like, why? Why that choice of words? Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Why is that? How these things end? I think that I would be misstating if I said that that was some master plan or, or big intention. It was. It was really my just my feeling. I don't think it's anything more than that. You know, you get to the end of a conversation and you're saying goodbye to someone. 
which is really what the what the end of a podcast is. I'm, I'm saying goodbye to people uh, who have who've taken the time to to listen to what I've had to say, and it, in a very one sided conversation, I'll, I'll admit. There's a part of me that you know, maybe it's a Minnesota sense, but it's a little bit like you know, good luck. I want the best for you, and I, I want things to work out for you. But I also, you know, you you're here with me. You've you've listened to an hour of me talk about something, and you obviously think that it was important enough to hang with me to that point. Thank you for that. I appreciate it, and and I I acknowledge that you're in this game with me, and you're you're trying to make this happen get out there and, and do what you can, you know, and, and maybe today you can't do a lot, but, but do what you can, you know, I mean, maybe it's, uh, it's having a conversation with someone at work or, or having a conversation at dinner. Or maybe today, the only thing you can do is, is just, you know, walk across the street, uh, <laughs> in, instead of driving, you know, I, I don't know what it is, whatever it is that you can do today, just do it, you know, do, do it and, and take joy in that and happiness in that and, and comfort in that because, that's what I'm doing. I'm I'm not doing everything perfect. I'm not living a hundred percent strong towns life that I would like to live. I, I still uh, have not been able to sell my house and move to an area that I, I think would be a better fit for me. I still have to drive way too much. Uh, there's a lot of things like this that I would love to change about my life, but I'm I'm doing what I can. I'm trying to say to people, thank you for being with me. Thanks for being part of it. Thanks for everything that you do. And know that this is a this is a journey we're on together. And if you keep doing what you can, I'll keep doing what I can, and and we'll get there. All right. Well, I'll let you say it. All right. Thanks everybody for listening, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.